Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. It's the week of Independence Day here in the United States of America. On July 4th, 1776, Americans like me had grown tired of faking a British accent. They longed for the freedom to spell honor and flavor without a U. They held it as a self-evident truth that the words criticize, apologize, and idolize should be spelled with a Z instead of an S. And they felt in their liberty-loving bones that aluminium couldn't possibly be the right way to pronounce that word. So they declared their independence from England and King George III. In honor of the 4th of July, this episode of the Habit Podcast continues the Hometown Stories series with five reminiscences of small-town America by writers from the Habit membership. Prepare for a gauzy, nostalgic look at the kind of Americana that makes you want to eat watermelon and listen to music by John Philip Sousa. Expect parades, fireworks, corn on the cob, pioneers on the Western Plains, and an outdoor concert involving Hank Williams Jr. If this episode doesn't make you proud to be an American, I don't know what else I can do for you. In our first story, Amanda Duvall takes us to Germantown, Wisconsin, a town that knows what to do on the 4th of July. Magic in a bottle, one day a year. For 364 days a year, Germantown, Wisconsin was about as predictable and ordinary a suburban town as one can imagine. About 40 minutes northwest of the big city, that is Milwaukee, we were any town USA with a healthy dose of Midwest nice. Many days, my high school felt like a living TV show with every trope and cliche in the book. Germantown High was the one and only public option where football was king and the players knew it because every Friday night, the entire town turned out to pay homage. For a teenager, my hometown was big enough to get into trouble, small enough where everyone found out about it, big enough to feel like a real place, small enough to want to leave at first chance. Once I did leave, I like to say it was a nice place to be from. And I meant it, glad not to live there now, but not unhappy that I once did. But one day a year, our little, nondescript Midwest hometown captured magic in a bottle. The 4th of July. The day always started early, even at 16, when all I wanted was privacy and sleep. But it was worth getting up with the rest of the family because the best seats for the parade were a hot commodity. And good parking near all the action, unless you had friends in the right places, was even harder to find. Not that we sat for many parades. For most of the parades of my memory, our family walked alongside our church float. Yep, we were those people, but slightly cooler, I like to think. This is because our church, new in town at the time, did something brilliantly unexpected. We decided to forego chucking candy and instead handed out water bottles, ice cold along the route. Now, Wisconsin may conjure visions of the frozen tundra, and rightfully so, but by July, it was hot and muggy, so our cold water bottles were very, very popular. So popular that we never stopped moving for the entire route, never stopped running back and forth, float to curb, float to curb, handing out water to eager, hot, and sweaty hands. And the fun thing was, everyone was there. I mean everyone. Neighbors, teachers, baseball team families from three years ago, classmates I sort of knew with their older siblings that I only heard stories about. They were there, all gathered in one spot for a day. It was like one big happy reunion if you could only spend two seconds with everyone you ever knew and whoever saw you grow up before having to run and catch up to the float again. In the midst of teenage angst and awkwardness, this one day always felt right. 
like belonging, like I had a place and a job and all these people were happy to see me do it. We arrived at the end of the parade route, tired but happy. And this is where the real magic happened. The parade ended at a large community park where food stalls, games, drinks, and more were set up for the rest of the day. Pretty much everyone who watched the parade would come over to the park to hang out for a good chunk of the day to eat and take in live music. The star of the show, though, was the corn stand. Midwest corn is the best corn, and I don't care what anybody says differently. This particular stand took the sweet corn and grilled it, peeled back the husk just far enough to see the yellow and white kernels inside, and then handed to you to dip in salty, very, as I recall, melted butter. No fancy corn picks, just your hand covered in dripping butter, holding onto the charred leaves, and it was, quite simply, perfection. Later on that day, as evening neared, in the very same park, everyone migrated over to a large hill to stake out their spot for fireworks. For my family, this looked like a few large blankets to accommodate our six, probably along another family from church, and some add-on friends or significant others. Then we just waited. For how long? If I had to guess, at least an hour or two, until the sun set far enough for the show to begin. We filled the time with more food, reflecting on the day, entertaining the younger kids with glow necklaces and sparklers. We were waiting, sure, but this was an equally memorable part of the day as every other activity, feeling lucky to spot and catch friends as they meandered by to find their own blankets and families. And then... Just as dusk would settle into darkness, whoever was running the show would shoot off a single firework, causing most of us to jump, but also doing the important job of telling everybody to sit down. The big show is about to start. I'm not sure how a small town like ours could afford to put on such an incredible fireworks show every year, but they did. I say Germantown, Wisconsin could rival any big city when it came to a grand finale. As an adult, I've now watched 4th of July fireworks in places like San Diego, Washington, D.C., and Nashville, all renowned displays with their own live TV broadcasts, but they can't compare to my hometown. My parents agree. As I remember it now, some of the splendor may be because we always had such an amazing view. We always did, because everyone did. The large hill overlooking the spot where they shot them off seemed to fit about the entire town. That seems impossible mathematically, but at least everyone who wanted to be there could find a patch. It was just right, the right amount of everything, and we all knew it. After the show ended and the hearty applause died down, we would pack up and become part of the mass exodus to our cars to drive tiredly home, weaving as best we could through gridlock of other tired families, the one day of the year our town had traffic. I remember those drives feeling as if the dream was fading and tomorrow I would wake up back in my old nondescript suburb again. For just one day, though, we had it all. We lived the dream, the American dream even, where everything good was obvious and ours and worth celebrating. I did go back for the fourth a few times after graduating high school. The whole experience felt smaller, to be sure. I heard the recession caused budget cuts, so maybe that was it. But that hill with those fireworks, they still had some of the old magic. My family doesn't live in Germantown anymore. We've scattered across the country, so the tradition only lives in my memory, and I find every beginning of July, I miss it. Now that I have a family of my own, I'm always on the hunt for a fourth like this one. For a while, it actually surprised me that it was so hard to find, as if every small town in America should make magic one day a year. But I've come to accept that I may never find it. 
Maybe it was the unrepeatable alchemy of spending such formative years in that particular time and particular place. I'll tell you this, though. I have a new appreciation for those old stomping grounds in Germantown, Wisconsin. As an adult, I can now see all the work it took to plan and pull off something like that every year. I wish I could go back and relive it, savor it, knowing what I know now and how rare that kind of magic really is. But I will have to settle for the joy of knowing I grew up enjoying the 4th of July in the best place in all the land. It still feels special, the way we anticipated the day, the way we took such pride in having this amazing thing happen right here, right in our hometown every year. It's almost like there was something simmering those other 364 days, just waiting to explode and make everyone else take notice, at least for this one day. Our next story, from Carrie Gibbons, was one of the stories that sparked the idea for this Hometown Stories series. At a Habit Retreat Story Night, Carrie read this saga of an American icon. Not Thomas Jefferson, or Benjamin Franklin, or Betsy Ross, but Bob's Big Boy. Big Boy, by Carolyn Claire Gibbons. If you had been a frequent reader of the Canton Observer newspaper in 2004, you could not have missed the story. The big boy, not the restaurant, but the boy himself, had already had his share of excitement in 2003. He'd been stolen one night by three teens and discovered in a field in the west of the township, his burger missing and his head bashed in. The Saturday morning crowd had noted his absence, but he was back in place by Sunday, a white bandage wrapped around his noggin. And that was nothing compared to what awaited his fresh replacement in 2004. It started with a citation. The township zoning board had strict signage rules for Ford Road. No one wanted to look like Wayne or Westland with their tacky hodgepodge of signs. This was Canton for crying out loud. We had our dignity. One sign on the building and one small sign by the road. No more, no less. And the zoning board said Big Boy was a sign. The first citation was waived by the township supervisor. He said it was all a misunderstanding. But the zoning board persisted and eventually Big Boy got his day in court. The Big Boy statue is an American icon since 1936, the owner said. We don't consider it a sign. The court date was set and Big Boy's lawyers went to battle the Zoning Board of Appeals, 35th District Court, Judge Ron Lowe presiding. Stay tuned, said the Canton Observer. It may have been a slow news year, 2004, or perhaps the editor just had a fancy for the case. Whatever the reason, every twist and turn, delay and recess, argument for and against was covered. The headline after the first hearing read, Sign, Art, Icon. What is Big Boy? Letters poured in from the community, pledging their support for the roly-poly boy with his cowlick and his burger. Three weeks were requested for further discovery, and the court adjourned. Then three more weeks. Then another. The arguments took on a new tenor. We'll be arguing simply that the statue is not a sign, said Big Boy's lawyer, but also that the ordinance is unconstitutionally vague. The Observer's editor got to run a new headline, Sign Law Constitutionality Questioned. He must have prided himself on getting a 17-letter word into the front-page headline just under the masthead. 
The case dragged on, spring turning to summer, while the lawyer looked for letters documenting other statue-sign-art situations. The Washington Post picked up the story and asked, is it art or advertising? With national buzz around it and summer fully arrived, the township supervisor offered a compromise. Big Boy could stay, if the lettering on his bib was painted out. The owners agreed to the terms, and a date for the painting was set. The Observer editor got three more front-page headlines out of it, even so. He highlighted the courtroom appearance of the lawyers to set the terms of the agreement, and the meeting to formally sign them. The Observer noted that without his name, Big Boy might have an identity crisis. A little dabble do ya, ran the final headline late that summer, topped with a photo of Big Boy's bib being painted over by his owner and lawyer. We actually avoided the age-old issue of is it art or a statue, said Big Boy's lawyer. And perhaps the question might never have been answered, but for the release of Shrek 2 that summer. In any debate about whether something is a cultural icon, it's always best to look to satire to know the truth. Satire never skewers simple signage. No, it pokes fun at the icons and art we hold dear. And there... In the kingdom of far, far away, among the spoofs of Farbuck's coffee and Versarchery and Old Knavery, there stands Friar's Fat Boy, proudly smiling in front of his restaurant, with a ham hock on a platter raised to the sky. Micah Hawkinson grew up in Manhattan, which, as you probably know, is the seat of Riley County, Kansas and less than 150 miles from the geographical center of the continental United States. If you were wondering what happens that close to the heart of America, Micah Hawkinson is here to tell you. The Little Apple by Micah Hawkinson I was born and raised in Manhattan, Kansas. And yes, we know. In the 70s, when New York put out all those tourism ads about the Big Apple, we rebranded as the Little Apple. Every New Year's Eve, the downtown merchants drop an apple-shaped ball to ring in the New Year. There's even an apple painted on the town's water tower. I guess you could say we've embraced it. So, whatever clever remark you have about the other Manhattan, we've probably heard it. But folks are pretty courteous here in the Little Apple, so we'll listen anyway. We may even laugh just to be polite. When New England abolitionists settled here in April 1855, they named the place Boston. That name probably would have stuck if the Kansas River had been a little higher that summer. As it happened, the river was low, and that June a steamboat ran aground right at the town site. It carried members of the Cincinnati Manhattan Company headed for a settlement 20 miles upriver. The Bostonians liked the stranded strangers, so they invited them to join their town. The Ohioans agreed to stay on one condition. The place had to be renamed Manhattan to honor their New York investors. So it was, and the community has been characterized by good-natured compromise ever since. You can't blame the Ohioans for wanting to stay. The lovely town site was situated at the confluence of two rivers, the Big Blue and the Kansas. It's surrounded by wooded glens, creeks that spill down to secluded valleys, and hills of ancient flint and limestone that ripple and roll like waves of the vast sea that once covered this part of the world. In the sky above, red-tailed hawks and turkey vultures float on thermals. 
The tall grass below conceals their would-be prey, mice, snakes, and a hundred other tiny creatures. Meadowlarks and mockingbirds sing a fence-post symphony, accompanied by cicadas and farm-pond frogs. These days, the Tuttle Creek Dam has more or less domesticated the Kansas River, disrupting the cycle of drought and flood that used to cripple Manhattan every couple decades. Of course, not everyone was a fan of the project. Folks from towns that would be flooded by the reservoir rallied against it under the slogan, Let's Stop This Damn Foolishness. The dam was built anyway, but in the lake's shallows and coves, you can still see the wading skeletons of oaks and cottonwoods that haven't stopped protesting yet. I grew up in a gravel road subdivision just south of the dam. On summer nights when the Kansas River was low, Dad would drive us out to watch the torrent of reservoir water flow out to feed it. Sometimes I still dream about that deafening roar and the way the vapor rainbows danced in the air above the concrete outlet tubes. A few miles upriver was Fort Riley, a military base. We always looked forward to Tuesday morning live fire drills when cannon booms rattled our windows and storm doors. There goes Fort Riley, we'd shout gleefully as Mom examined her china cabinet for damage. Between the fort and Kansas State University, go Wildcats, half the town's population was between the ages of 18 and 25. This led to occasional dust-ups, particularly when the college students, soldiers from the fort, and townies all mingled together in Aggieville, the nightlife district near the university. One 18-and-under dance club was particularly notorious for the number of students and soldiers who got stabbed there. In addition to the stabbings, there were midnight drag races, raucous bonfires at the lake shore, beer cans, used condoms, and other detritus left behind said bonfires, and of course, the unceremonious dumping of unwanted couches on our favorite hiking trail for some reason. We who dwelt in Manhattan year-round lived a double life. All summer long, it was safe to ride our bikes three miles to the local pool. It was safe to go to the quick shop or play basketball at the playground or cross a busy street downtown. It was even safe to wade barefoot at Pillsbury Crossing, a limestone ford where settlers used to drive their wagons across Deep Creek. But when August hit, these things all got dangerous. The roads were crowded with college kids and pickup trucks, many of them away from the family farm for the first time. Short kids no longer got picked for pickup basketball games though they did sometimes get picked on instead. Broken beer bottles littered the waiting paths at Pillsbury Crossing, so during the school year, we pretty much stayed in our neighborhood. Summer, though, was a time of sanctuary. Until the country stampede came to town, of course. During that crazy music festival in July, the college kids came back, sunburnt and shaven, and ready to set sail for Margaritaville. Other country music fans came, too, and thousands of them pitched tents at Tuttle Creek's campground. I worked security at the Stampede one summer during college, and I will not soon forget it. The restrooms were a problem. There weren't nearly enough of them. Eventually, the men in line resorted to mass public urination, correctly assuming that no security guard on earth gets paid enough to stop 40 drunk frat boys from doing the needful all at once in a random ditch. Gabe, a young and very enthusiastic co-worker of mine, desperately wanted to do something about it. Do you see them? He asked me. Do you see them urinating in public? 
he fiddled with his two-foot-long maglight, which he had with him because he had been forbidden to carry a firearm. Uh, yeah, I said. Well, it's not allowed. It's against the rules. He practically jumped up and down in frustration. Let's go cut their wristbands off. I'm not sure that's a great idea, I said. They don't look like they'd go peacefully. But they're urinating in public. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to go ask Moldy about it. Moldy was the police lieutenant in charge of security. I'd been hired for this job because we went to church together. I felt a special connection to him because he and his wife, like my parents, had 11 homeschooled children. They had named all theirs with J's, while my parents had opted for Bible names, but I didn't hold it against them. Moldy confirmed my suspicions that we should not try to chase the offenders down and remove their festival wristbands by force. And tell Gabe to calm down, would you? He added. The day went about like you'd expect it to when you have several thousand drunk country music fans all together down by the lake. Fortunately, the music was loud and the beer was cold, so there weren't too many problems aside from abundant mosquitoes and sparse toilet facilities. My main job was to keep the fire lane clear of coolers and folding chairs, and I was pretty good at it too. But that changed toward sundown when the Hank Williams Jr. fans trickled in with their motorcycle vests and Confederate flags and sunglasses and probably brass knuckles secreted on their persons, I somehow got a bit shy and figured that if an ambulance or fire truck really needed to get through, surely these kind folks would get out of the way when asked. So there I stood, listening to Hank belt out family tradition as the sun set the Kansas horizon aflame with orange and pink and purple, and 10,000 people all sang along. In that moment, I felt the presence of multitudes, joined in some fashion by this lovely land we shared. The Ohioans who ran aground 20 miles from their destination, the damn protesters, the college students and soldiers in the crowd, my mom and dad and Moldy and Hank Jr. and even poor eager Gabe with his huge maglite, all of us were here watching the sunset over the river that had brought us all together. I enjoyed these contemplations for a few moments until a huge Hank fan backed into me without noticing burying my sneakers beneath his combat boots. Uh, excuse me, sir, I shouted into the small of his back. I, uh, I think you're in the fire lane. Oh, yeah? He turned and looked down at me. A remarkably realistic skull was tattooed below his left eye. My brief and uneventful life flashed before my eyes. My bad, man. Sorry. He took a few steps to his left and rejoined the sing-along. See, I told you, folks are pretty courteous here in the Little Apple. Megan Cousins Hua has deep roots in the ranching and farming town of Eaton, Colorado. Five generations back, her ancestors homesteaded the farm where she grew up. Here's a story and poem of that place and that family. Impressions of a Hometown by Megan Cousins Hua On February 11, 2023, the townsfolk of Eaton, Colorado, paid $25 a ticket to gather in the Evangelical Free Church and hear the Pioneer Society of Eaton tell a story they already knew. 
It's the story shared over barbed wire fences while moving cattle over early morning coffee after changing the first head of water between rolled down driver's side pickup windows and beside the grain elevator. My oldest brother, the vice president of the society and the fifth generation on the cousin's family farm, retold the story of the cousin's family, updating the town's oral repository with farm and family photos and the changing landscape of agriculture. My family's story is just one of many in my hometown, for Eaton beats with the hearts of pioneers, their stories and their perseverance in the face of storms that surmount with every passing season. Ask me for a glimpse of the Garden of Eden, and I offer you the corner of County Roads 43 and 72, where part of the Cousins family farm homesteaded at the turn of the 20th century. Ask me for a glimpse of the fall of the Garden of Eden, and I offer this impression, a poem of my father, the patriarch of the Cousins family farm. This is the artistry of farm towns. My first still life. My initial impression was red, a poppy field, a sunrise, an umbrella. I saw Impressionism for the first time at the Denver Art Museum during high school. I knew little of art except what my childhood home's west-facing picture window framed of my family's farm in Eaton. The milk barn with woolly ewes in the foreground, Long's Peak dressed and undressed in winter's cloak as the background. Weather was my first encounter with life's death colliding, sometimes with such resonance, yet other times with such dissonance. My dad, the farmer and patient painter, dabbed the dirt canvas with small brown seeds that grew for weeks, months into swaths of shamrock-colored crops against a powdery, puffy blue sky. I remember summer's betrayal in July, a storm. Hail pummeled the crops a disheveling form. My dad stood at the picture window with his hands clutching his sweat-stained pioneer seed hat. Before him lay crops, a hazy replica of life, and dappled light striking what I could barely make out of blurred shadows cast from the bruising sky. My first impression of Monet, Renoir, and Cezanne at the art museum, though I knew not their names, was, I've seen this before, broken brush strokes, faded contours, opposing backgrounds and foregrounds, and long shadows of still life. For there is one artwork to marvel, the steady faith of a farmer to sow and reap season after season. My father never disgraced the hail, nor the drought that hit a few years later. He waits still for a new creation. And finally, like the rocket pop after the hamburger and the hot dog and the corn on the cob, we have a last sweet little dessert of a story from Chelsea Barnwell. Chelsea isn't from Mayberry, but it sounds like maybe her bank teller was. Local Business, a drive through setup by Chelsea Barnwell. There is something satisfying about a city which is big enough that you can run errands with some anonymity, but small enough that you'll probably see at least one person from church when you're at the grocery store. Everyone should occasionally see someone you have never met, but recognize instantly. Maybe they go to your dentist? 
Yes, our city is in the sweet spot, big enough that locals complain about the traffic, how heavy it's gotten in recent years, how much construction there is. We didn't need that crazy roundabout. Two-way, no way. But small enough that the newcomers also complain about the traffic, but for different reasons. How the infrastructure was designed with no acceleration lanes onto the expressway. How can you be on 501 North and 29 South at the same time? Why is everyone losing their minds over a roundabout? Even with the revitalization of downtown and a recent housing boom, the family-run businesses keep the small town feel. When my sister Bree was a waitress, she got to know the bank tellers pretty well as they would count on her tip money and sort her small change for deposit. It's great to be able to support local businesses which care about the company-to-customer relationship. One day, Bree found out just how deep these relationships could go. One morning, pulling up to the drive through window, Bree stuffed a wad of ones several inches thick into an envelope. She yawned as she signed her deposit slip on the steering wheel. Good morning, Brianne. How are you today, honey? The voice crinkled through the speaker as the teller drawer shot open. Louise always pronounced Bree's full name, Brianna, like a southern double name, Brianne, drawing out the second part. Bree smiled at the lady whose graying curls framed her face like a silver halo. I'm doing all right. A little tired. How are you? I'm fine. What can I do for you today? Could you deposit 600 of that in my checking and give me 200 back in 10s and 20s? Sure thing, honey. Louise fastidiously arranged the crisp new bills and slipped them in an envelope with a receipt. She placed it in the drawer, but the drawer did not shoot open. While Brie waited, Louise cast a furtive glance over her shoulder and then peered out the window behind Brie's car. She leaned into the little mic and whispered, Brianne? She drew out the Anne even longer than usual. Her hushed tone was amplified through the speaker system. Brie also instinctively checked her rear view. There was no one behind her. Uh, yes? She resisted the temptation to also begin whispering. Brianne, you know Michael, don't you? The one who helped you set up your CD? Brie nodded, vaguely remembering a blonde man about her height. He's been talking about you. He was wondering if you're seeing anyone. Brie wondered if there was a breach of confidentiality somewhere in this transaction. Oh, no, I'm not. Louise glanced behind her again before continuing. Would it be all right if he called you? He's a real nice boy. As she said this, she shook her head for emphasis on the word real. Bree wondered if it was safe to go out with someone your bank teller set you up with. On the other hand, this guy already had access to all her personal and financial information, and he did have a steady job at a bank. Yes, that would be okay. Louise beamed and the teller drawer shot open with Bree's requested cash. I'll let him know. You take care now, Brianne. Thank you. You too. It makes you feel at home living in a city small enough for such special relationships with the people you do business with. Though also comforting that it's big enough, you can take your banking elsewhere if a setup goes south. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. 
and all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.